Good morning, Covenant College. As always, I count it a great honor to speak before the whole Covenant College community. I appreciate the extra lights and sound equipment and so forth. It's just a chapel talk. It didn't all seem necessary, but I do appreciate it, so thank you. Um, this morning's chapel talk is the first in a new uh, series uh, going to be put on by the faculty. In it, you'll hear professors speaking about the integration of faith, learning, and life. How does God's word and the good news of Jesus inform, challenge, and weave truths into our frames of reference or callings as students and teachers in our daily lives at home, in our neighborhoods, and in our churches? This is the central question that shapes our work together at this college. It's really why we're here on this mountain. But because it's such a broad and admittedly abstract question, we're going to use this series to try to break it down a bit. We've invited each faculty speaker this year to focus on a single idea, a theological concept, a Christian virtue, a condition of life, a human frailty, and to unpack it through biblical, scholarly, and personal reflection. We did a series like this many years ago, and at the time, professors took up topics such as pride, gratitude, obedience, and humility, reverence, hope, patience, and perseverance, weakness, delight, failure, and mystery. We hope that by bringing the integration of faith, learning, and life into sharper focus, we can both encourage and equip you to make progress on your journey in your own lives. And we want to offer you uh, some, th some ideas to think about, maybe some ideas to debate among yourselves. We pray that you'll find these talks challenging and edifying. We also hope that they'll allow you to get to know us a little bit better. I'd like to begin my talk this morning with three short stories. First, uh, on the afternoon of May 22nd, 1856, U.S. Representative Preston Brooks, a pro-slave Democrat from South Carolina, entered the chamber of the United States Senate looking for Senator Charles Sumner, a Republican abolitionist from Massachusetts. Earlier that week, Sumner delivered a fiery speech on the Senate floor denouncing the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which allowed for the possibility of slavery to establish itself in Kansas through popular sovereignty. In his speech, the senator took aim at another senator, South Carolina's Andrew Butler. There, Sumner used what many deemed at the time sexually explicit language referring to Butler's mistress, to whom he had made vows, and who, ugly to others, is always lovely to him, though polluted in the sight of the world, is chaste in his sight. The lover Sumner had in mind? The harlot, slavery. In addition to using provocative and coarse language, Sumner hurled other insults and slanders at Butler in criticizing his unbending support for slavery. Representative Brooks was a second cousin to the elderly butler. 
So when he entered the chamber that afternoon, Brooks had, was very much thinking about Sumner's speech. He approached the senator, seated at his desk, and calmly stated, Mr. Sumner, I've read your speech twice over carefully. It is libel on South Carolina and Mr. Butler, who is a relative of mine. Brooks then proceeded to raise his gold-tipped walking cane above his head and began beating Sumner mercilessly until his cane broke into pieces. While Sumner survived the brutal attack, he was left bloodied and disfigured with permanent damage to both his spinal cord and his head. Historians have long interpreted this violent altercation as an important step toward the American Civil War. Second story. On September 25th, 2013, Milwaukee Brewers outfielder Carlos Gomez hit a towering home run to left center field off Atlanta Braves pitcher Paul Mahomes. Rather than running quickly around the bases, Gomez stood smugly to watch the ball sail far over the fence. And then he proceeded to trot slowly and deliberately around the bases. Before he even reached first, an angry first baseman, Freddie Freeman, feeling insulted on behalf of his team, began shouting curses at Gomez. As he rounded second for third, the entire Atlanta Braves infield joined in verbal abuses being flung at Gomez. As the batsman approached home plate, Braves catcher Brian McCann stood firmly in his path, screaming at the base runner. This interaction quickly turned physical as both benches emptied and a full-scale brawl between the two teams ensued, fists and expletives flying in every direction. When the umpires finally brought order back to the game, both Gomez and Freeman were ejected and Gomez never did reach home plate. Last story. On April 23, 2005, a 25-year-old British-Pakistani woman named Samara Nazir was at her home in South Hall, Middlesex, England. She'd recently met and fallen in love with an Afghan immigrant named Salam Mohammed. The two planned to marry. The only problem was her family strongly disapproved of the union Mohammed was from a caste found unacceptable to Samara's family, who had previously presented her with numerous approved suitors from within the family circle. She returned home that day intending to persuade her family of her intent to marry Salam and to carry out their future plans. There in the house, a heated argument erupted between Samara and her family, and it turned violent. Samara was surrounded by her parents, one of her brothers, and a cousin who held her down, tied a scarf around her neck, and stabbed her 18 times. Her two young nieces, ages two and four, stood as a witness to the barbaric murder. Now, what do these three seemingly unrelated stories have in common? Well, all are set in cultures where honor is held in high esteem. The Old South, Major League Baseball, and a, particularly, and a particular very traditional Muslim community. All three stories pit individuals whose personal, family, or group honor has been challenged or smeared against perceived violators of that honor. Insulting a culture, showboating around the bases, choosing a mate unacceptable to the family. 
All three stories involve honor challenged or lost and efforts made to restore honor utilizing violence. Honor is both a very common term and one that is simultaneously strange and famously difficult to define. We use it as a verb. In traditional wedding vows, men and women are called to honor and love their wives and husbands. As a noun, we use it as a term of respect for those in positions of authority, especially judges, your honor. It can be used as an adjective. I recently went to a farmer's market whose produce could be purchased using an honor system. There was no one at the counter to take our money. We could put what we owed into a drawer of cash and make our own change as needed. Or not. We did. So far as you know. We might also think of honor as a kind of personal possession. Every Monday night at St. Elmo Presbyterian Church, dressed in my uniform, after pledging allegiance to the American flag, I joined the boys of Troop 2 to repeat the Boy Scout oath, beginning with the words, on my honor. In secondary and higher education, one can still find honor codes. The West Point honor code reads, a cadet will not lie, cheat, or steal or tolerate those who do. High-achieving students can take honors classes and enroll in special honors programs and honors colleges. And if you study very hard, you can make the honor roll. If you're able to maintain a high enough GPA, you will graduate with honors. And a few of you may even be inducted into an honor society. Maybe you already have. There are some in conservative circles who voice strong feelings of nostalgia for a lost age when honor is said to have guided all human activity. Days of yore when a man's honor was his most precious and inviolable possession. And upholding dignity and honor of his family, his community, his nation overrode every other consideration. Honor once served as a barometer of virtue and vitality of both men and nations, observes one commentator longing for its return. It was vital for the maintenance of order in civil society. For these, honor harkens back to days of manly courage and chivalry that raised the bar for everyone on behaving with integrity and moral uprightness. In an age of social debauchery and moral rot, many argue that honor needs to make a comeback, and quickly. Others look on codes of honor as outdated and even dangerous. They see honor as wholly bound up with hierarchical, male-dominated communities of the past that ordered societies according to rules based on social rank, personal wealth, family prestige, gender, and even race. These critics dismiss honor as an aristocratic virtue that in an age of duels and lynchings invited people to settle disputes and violation of honor codes, taking the law into their own hands. Very often, as we saw in our opening stories, they did so using violence. Codes of honor, for the most part, have been swept into the dustbin of history, and as far as many are concerned, we're all better off for it. So what are we to make of honor? Is it a Christian virtue? Are there biblically faithful ways of thinking about its place in Christian life and in contemporary society? 
Well, I want to argue this morning that honor is clearly a part of the Bible's framework for ordering our lives and guiding our behavior. The Bible makes no sense without it. But like so many other facets of its profound and prophetic teachings, God's word presents us with a vision of honor that turns many of our assumptions and default beliefs about it on their head. And leads us to to practices that don't fit comfortably on any conservative versus progressive continuum. You don't have to read the Bible very thoroughly to see that the language of honor seeps into almost every nook and cranny of the text. And there really are strong connections between the honor as reflected in the Bible and how we ordinarily understand it, both in the ancient sense of it and even in the modern sense. Honor is primarily a social term that describes how members of certain groups and societies morally measure themselves against one another and against a shared code of conduct. Respect for and obedience to the code is supreme. If you're in the group, you follow the code and you treat it as sacred. Your word in a culture of honor is your bond. By extension, you bestow honor on those who exemplify it well. Such people are thought of by members of the group as honorable. To violate the code is to desecrate what the group has set aside as good and holy. To violate the code brings shame on yourself and on the group. Such desecrations must be confronted, and the offending party must be punished or even cast out of the group. In this way, I've come to think of honor as a kind of moral currency. Each member's share of that currency increases or decreases depending on what the group values and how well members of that group reflect those values. While particular norms and codes differ from one honor culture to another, whether it's a hockey team or an inner-city street gang or a Bedouin tribe, every honor culture passionately guards its sacred code, and trades its moral currency of respect and obedience carefully as a scarce, almost fragile commodity. To lose it is to lose everything. Honor is traditionally bestowed on those of social position, status, wealth, or character. We reserve seats of honor for individuals we regard as special or important. The root word for honor in the Hebrew Bible is synonymous with heaviness or weight. To possess honor is to have been given the weight of responsibility over people and institutions. To possess honor might also mean bearing the weight of that group's moral code by upholding it and defending it especially well. It would have been impossible to have attended Dr. Kevin Eames's memorial service a few weeks ago and to have failed to understand that he in this community was a highly honored man. He understood our code. He embodied it magnificently. This aspect of honor corresponds pretty well to the idea of honor found in the Bible. Positions of status and authority matter in the scriptures. They deserve our reverence and our respect. The Bible commands us to honor our fathers and our mothers, the elderly, 
and those who rule over us, whether politically or otherwise. The Bible also commands us to honor our church leaders. The answer to question 127 in the Westminster Larger Catechism considers the honor that people of lesser status owe to people of greater status. And the list of what we owe them is kind of long. Check it out. Most importantly, the scriptures call us to honor God. Revelations 4.11, we read, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive honor and glory and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. All we do and say is meant to confer respect and humble obedience to the Lord our God. Our worship is always intended to speak forth and celebrate the honor we owe to God and God alone. We also read in John 5.23 that God the Father bestowed honor on his Son, Jesus. So that unless we honor the Son, we cannot honor the Father who sent him. So giving honor to Christ is a central feature of the Bible's vision of Christian living. Now, here's where things get interesting. I mean, I hope it was interesting before, but I think they get really interesting. It may appear that the honor spoken of in the scriptures is more or less the same as the honor we find in the heroic honor cultures of the past. But when we focus our attention more closely onto the life and ethic of Jesus, we begin to see that many of our assumptions that we have about honor are dramatically turned on their head. Despite the undeniably central place that honor occupies in God's word and in Christian living, nowhere does God call us to seek it for ourselves, to protect it, to preserve it, to defend it, to restore it, or to fight for it? Nowhere. In fact, as we encounter the life and teachings of Christ more deliberately, we see that Jesus achieved glory and honor not by seeking it, but by turning his back on it, by rejecting and even despising it. Hebrews 2.9 we read, But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might, may, might taste death for everyone. This idea fits nowhere in the traditional logic of honor. The ethic of Jesus tells us that honor may only be achieved at the end of a road filled with humiliation and shame. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 reads, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but considered himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the topsy-turvy ethic of our manger-sleeping, foot-washing, 
donkey-riding Savior, honor is achieved by pursuing dishonor and by courting shame. Let me say that again. In this topsy-turvy ethic of our manger-sleeping, foot-washing, donkey-riding Savior, honor is achieved by pursuing dishonor and by courting shame. In Mark's gospel, we watch as Jesus is abandoned by his friends, stripped, whipped, mocked, and hoisted on a cross where he cries out to God for many hours of suffering, and he dies alone. The one whose name is held above every name endures the deepest and most humiliating of public disgraces. In an ancient world that would have understood the importance of respect and deference to codes of honor, the Apostle Paul recognizes that the cross of Christ was a folly and a stumbling block. Degrading, dishonorable, horrifying. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Jesus didn't endure this shame only as a means of achieving our salvation. He seems also to have offered this picture of humiliation as a guidebook for living an honorable life. In a world where we might believe that it's important to cultivate reputations of respect and admiration, and where it might make good sense to defend honor against slights and offenses, Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Blessed are you. In a world where we might feel justified in employing violence against someone who's aggrieved our honor and defamed the name of God, Jesus says, do not resist an evil person. Someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. Brothers and sisters, I need to confess to you that I find this a very hard teaching. I like it when people show me respect. It matters to me that I'm well thought of and viewed as a person of character. I want to do a good job giving this chapel talk right now, in part because I really want you to think well of me. I like living in a place where I have opportunities to hold positions of importance. I like wearing titles like professor, elder, scoutmaster, published author, board member. These labels are my brand. And I am a vigilant brand manager. I don't particularly like the idea of my words and my actions bringing shame on my family or on this community. I don't love the idea of people saying false things about me. I have a lot to lose. I'm also pretty partial to my wife, to my family, to my friends, my church, my hometown, my alma maters, and my neighborhood. Don't even get me started on Cleveland sports teams. 
I'm also very partial to this place and to all of you. My natural instinct is to elevate, defend, and proudly trumpet the reputation of Covenant College, its faculty and its staff, its students, past and present. I get very defensive when people talk smack about covenant. Those feel to me like fighting words. Each of these are extensions of my honor and my reputation. And if I'm really honest with myself, they're idols that I cling to in order to give my life purpose and meaning. And if I'm being brutally honest, I assign greater weight to the condition of my reputation, the status of my brand, than I do to the basic reality of God's eternal love for me. My honor feels like my surest foundation. I'll spend far more time managing and propping up my status in the eyes of the watching world than I will in striving to rest contented in the unconditional love of my Father, come what may. I don't think I'm alone in this. We live in an age where Christians are increasingly known for our grievances, for being offended at the way we're being treated, backs against the wall in a culture indifferent or hostile to our values. We, like Preston Brooks on the, in the chamber of the U.S. Senate, are inclined to demand satisfaction. And like Brooks, we're not above deploying violence in order to get it. We American evangelicals have lately been in a fighting mood. Some of us are even kind of pleased when we find a verbally abusive strong man who's willing to come along and help us restore our good name to its rightful status of prominence and power. We want our honor back and we're willing to kick some tail to get it. So what if in the meantime we cast aspersions on our struggling neighbors? So what if we willingly neglect the poor, the hungry, the stranger, the prisoner, the lonely, the brokenhearted? We have our honor to think about. This all makes sense. But sadly, this isn't the way of Jesus. Rather than spending his life seeking to prop up his honor, he poured himself out. Willingly walking a pathway of self-effacing shame and humiliation. Rather than carefully managing his investments in that moral bank called honor, Jesus gladly accepted the cloak of scandal and disgrace. If honor anywhere registered as a motivation in his life, it was never in seeking to defend it for himself. Instead, in Jesus we see a man driven to show honor to others. And he was always found bestowing honor most zealously upon the traditionally least honored. Upon blind men and beggars, women and children tax collectors and Samaritans, on the mentally disturbed, lepers, adulterers, prostitutes and thieves. He dignified each of them. He dignified each of them. 
He ennobled them with his attention. He bore witness to their pain. He honored them with his friendship. He reminded them of their inherent worth as human beings, created by God and dearly loved. And he laid down his life for them. And for all of us, beggars and thieves. What would it look like for Covenant College to make of itself a community of honor in the manner of Jesus? A community whose members live truly as honorable people. Let me suggest that we're not likely to do so by fastidiously managing and defending our honor or by fighting for status and power in our culture. No. I think we'll only become honorable men and women when we're willing to let all of that go. To pour ourselves out, turning away from the idols of honor to actively bestow honor on one another. In his letter to the Romans, Apostle Paul commands us, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Look around you. Uh, Seated all over this chapel auditorium this morning, there are hurting, discouraged, angry, and broken people. Show honor. There are battered, cynical, wounded, grieving, and frightened people. Show honor. There are doubting, guilt-ridden, worried, exhausted, depressed, and endlessly, frustratingly difficult to love people. Show honor. What would it take for us to stop nursing our own wounded egos and managing our brands long enough to turn our gaze outward and to begin showing honor to one another? Jesus forsook his honor and poured himself out in love for all of us beggars and fools. Let us follow Jesus and strive to do the same. Will you pray with me? Worthy are you, O Lamb, who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne, And to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever.